Morning. Journey kids are dismissed if, we, if you're not already headed that way. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 7. We will jump in in just a second. So, um, so last week as we looked in John chapter 7, we, we saw opposition mounting towards Jesus. And we asked the question, um, has anybody ever really, really, really wanted to kill you? That's probably a sensation that we have never had. And so I need to admit that um, I lied to you all last week because I have felt that. And so uh, one of the privileges I get to have as a dad is I get to take my kids to school in the morning. And so one day last year, I'm taking my two oldest kids to the middle school there in Harrisburg. And so that always affords me a little bit of time to have conversations with my kids uh, and just, you know, encourage them as they're about to go out on their day. And so usually that ends as they're getting out of the car. I say, hey, I love you. Have a great day. And so usually they'll respond back, hey, we love you. Thanks. And so this particular morning, I don't know what was going on, but I said, hey, I love you. And uh, my daughter got out of the car. She was in eighth grade at the time and uh, didn't respond. She gathered up her things and just got out of the car, and I was like, well, that's, that's not like her. I wonder what's going on. And so I thought, like, maybe she just didn't hear me. So I rolled down the window, <laughs> and I just made sure that she could hear me. So I, said, I told her I loved her. Um, she would say that I hollered. I would just say it was at the right volume to where only she could hear me. But she whipped her head around. And if looks could kill, I would have been dead. <laughs> so, um, like I said, m- many of us don't have that sort of uh, experience where somebody really wishes ill on us, but that day I did. And, and, you know, we talked about, like, sometimes we would think that that would change our perception. It would change how we act. And I don't know that that has changed how I would act. So, um, But we're continuing on in John chapter 7. So uh, as a refresher, we are six or seven months past the end of John chapter 6, where we saw Jesus feed the multitudes. And scholars would say there were probably 20,000 people there, uh, once you count all the women and children. And so after that miraculous miracle, we see that the crowds, they want to make Jesus a king by force. And so Jesus knowing that that's what they want to do, he withdraws and he resists that. And so he starts teaching them with some really hard words. The, the words he's sharing with them are so hard that he actually drives the entire crowd away so that there's only about 12 of his most loyal followers, the 12 disciples, are left. And so we saw last week that we are in the Feast of Booths. That's what's going on. In Jerusalem, we met his physical brothers, his other brothers through Mary and Joseph, and we saw how they, even just like the crowd, they wanted Jesus to prove himself. They wanted him to go up to the festival and manifest himself in some big way. And we saw that they wanted Jesus to conform to their image of the Messiah, that they would follow Jesus based on what they could get out of Jesus. And so again, we see Jesus resist this temptation because he's not, he's not going to give in to what other people's timelines are. He's going to follow the Father's divine sovereign timeline. And so after that, we see that Jesus goes up 
to the festival, but he does it in secret. He does it privately. He's not going to go up in the manner that his brothers want him to go up. And that's because the religious authorities there, they want to kill him. They want to kill him. And we talked about how it's a raging, raging inferno of hate directed at Jesus. So today, we're going to see Jesus double down on this. Again, we would think if someone was out to kill us, if they wanted our head, that we would change how we act. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's not going to appease the crowd. He's going to continue with the same approach that we saw in John chapter 6. He's not interested in winning fans. He's not interested in winning friends. And in fact, he just continues to make enemies. And so last week we saw that Jesus, he exposes sin in other people. He said that he comes and testifies of the works of the world and how they are evil And so this week, as he addresses the crowd, he's going to hit on the Jews and their reliance on their tradition, their reliance on Moses, their reliance on the law. And so we need to remember that the Jews, their whole identity, their national identity is tied up in the law. It's tied up in Moses. And so they don't believe that they are part of the world. They don't believe that they um, are evil. They believe that they are entirely separate, that just by virtue of being a Jew that they are saved. And so Jesus is going to hit them right where it counts. He's going to turn their argument against them. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7. We're going to read verses 14 through 24. So this is what God's Word says. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that that you want to teach us just like you were teaching in the temple, as we just read. Help us. Help us, Lord, to see our need for you, that there's no salvation outside of you, that only you have the words of eternal life. So we ask that you soften our hearts to hear your truth. Help us to wrestle rightly with your hard words and help us to submit ourselves to you today. We thank you and we love you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we see right off the very beginning Verses 14 and 15, let me read them again. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? And so 
we see that Jesus, he arrives in the middle of the festival, and the first thing he does is he goes up and he's teaching in the temple. And so we want to latch on to that bit of context here for just a minute, because he's speaking in the temple what we would have the idea of a church. So he's here, he's talking to people in the church. He's not talking to outsiders. He is not talking to atheists. He's not talking to agnostics. He's not talking to people that are hostile to the faith. He is talking directly to religious people, people that know Scripture, people that would know the Lord. And so here, he's talking directly to us. So sometimes when we get that feeling, right, that, hey, Jesus is talking to us, he's talking to the religious people, we're like, hey, man, I hope so-and-so in the back is listening to this. We think that his message is for other people. Hey, I hope that Blake hears this. Blake, you with me? (laughs) But we want to latch on to what Jesus is saying here and know that he is speaking directly to each and every one of us. It's as if Jesus has walked up here. He's got the crowd gathered right here. He's teaching to people that are at the temple that are here to worship the Lord. So let him speak this morning. So we see the crowd's reaction to Jesus as he starts to teach. They're amazed. They're astonished. They know that he has authority, but he's different. They know that he's different. And so they begin to question his authority or his training because he doesn't point to someone else. He doesn't point to another rabbi. See, teachers in this day, if they were up there teaching, one of the things that they would do right off the bat is they would tell you who their mentor was, who their teacher was, because that was a way for them to establish their legitimacy. That was a way for them to validate their message. But Jesus doesn't get up there and point to another man. And so the traditional channels of teaching that they were used to, Jesus doesn't fit into that. So they don't authorize him to teach. And it goes against their expectations of what they would expect from a teacher. Their tradition demanded a specific set of expectations for someone to get up and teach them. And so a relevant point for us is that Jesus didn't have formal training. And so in the same way, it's not it's not necessary for us as teachers to necessarily have seminary training or formal theological training because the point isn't what our training is about. The point is the truth. And so some of that seminary, some of that Bible school training, that's helpful, but it's not necessary. And so for us here at The Journey, that really doesn't hit us too much because Jordan doesn't have any seminary training. I don't have any seminary training. That's obvious when you hear us speak because we say things like crucifixed. Uh, that's Jordan's favorite word right now. Uh, I last week mentioned about an alleged uh, staff member's use of meth, and so I had to put in alleged according to my manager so that everybody would know that that was a joke last week. So that's not stuff that they teach you in seminary. And so The good news for us is that most of us will never go to seminary. We won't go to Bible college and have this sort of formal training. But each of us can know God's word. And each of us can be a scholar when it comes to Scripture. That God wants us to know him. And he wants us to know him intimately. And the best way to do that is to dive in right here. 
And so one of the goals that Jordan and I have, and we've talked about a number of times, is that even though we are in the midst of a pastoral transition right now, our goal is that 20, 25 years from now, when there's another transition, that the journey would do such a good job of training us up, training up our flock here, our body, that the next pastor would rise up in our midst, that God would say, this is who I want to lead. And that's because we've done such a good job on training each other when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to knowing God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And so that's regardless of seminary training, and good, that, that would be okay. But we want our goal to be to raise one another up. And so this is a whole church effort. This is just not my goal. This isn't just Jordan's goal or the elder's goal, but all of us have a part to play in that. So if you think all of our kids just left, they go back to Journey Kids. So if you are a Journey Kids teacher, right, it starts right there that as we teach our children, we're teaching them the depth of Scripture, the knowledge of Scripture, how wonderful it is that we have God's Word. It continues on as those students transition to Journey students. And it's not just my job in Journey students, but our, our workers, right? It happens in one-on-one discipleship as we take each other aside and say, hey, let's study together. It happens in community groups. If you're not in a community group, I would encourage you, get involved, find a group, because that's where we shepherd one another. That's where we teach one another. That's where we hold one another up. And that's where discipleship happens. And of course, it will happen up here as we preach faithfully out of God's Word. But as we talk about becoming a scholar I know there's always excuses because I used to have them myself. I don't have time. It's too hard. I don't know how to do it. That's for pastors. That's not for us regular folk. What I want to tell you is don't sell yourself. Don't sell yourself short. Don't sell yourself short. All of us have the ability, all of us have the capacity to become a scholar of scripture. And I know this because I work with our students. And if you were to ask them how the entire Marvel universe fits together, they could tell you. They would take an hour, but they could piece out all the different movies fit together. And it's a big, complex story. I've only seen the very first Spider-Man, which I saw in college, so I don't know how the rest of it goes, even though I read all the comics as a kid. I don't know how that story goes, but every single one of our kids could tell you how Iron Man fits in with Captain America. And if they can do that, I know that they can be scholars, that they can dive deep into God's Word. But the same goes for us. And so just as Jesus is going to step on their toes, I might step on your toes here for just a minute. I was talking with a buddy not too long ago, and we were talking about this phenomenon and what he called a craft culture. How our hobbies, we have our hobbies, but not only are they hobbies, but we become experts in our hobby. And we become such the expert that we begin to evangelize to everyone about our own hobbies. And so we started rattling off a bunch of different examples and how this manifests itself. We talked about the craft beer, the craft drink, the cigars, right? How it's not enough that you just go 
to the store, go to Kroger or Walmart, but you got to go and get the best stuff. One that I've seen, coffee. It's not that you just have your little coffee pot or your Keurig, but you get the big honking machine that can make a latte or an espresso. And you just don't go and you buy Folgers. You buy whole beans, and then you get a grinder, and you grind it up, right? And then you got to roast it, and then you got to put it in, right? And then you make it all steamy and whatever. And the guy inevitably tells you, you haven't had coffee until you've had my coffee. Let me fix you something special, right? Have you ever been out on a golf course, those of you that golf? Y'all know who I'm talking about. The guy that's got all the equipment tells you what you need to buy, the type of ball that you need to hit with, the type of driver you need, the type of wedge that you need. He can tell you how to fix your slice. He's wrong. It never works. Right? What about you fitness and health gurus? I don't know about you all, but in Harrisburg, CrossFit is huge. They are a cult. They are worse than the Jehovah's Witness, right? (laughs) I think that they take some sort of like blood pack, blood oath, and they will come and they will evangelize. And it's not good enough to get on an exercise bike, but they will tell you, no, you got to come to CrossFit and you got to do all this different stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to hurt for the next month, right? What about those guys that are into stock market and investing? They know exactly how you need to invest your money and they'll tell you how. What about people that have their boat or their truck or their car? They know exactly how it works. They can tell you how to restore it, how to make it run better. What about the armchair political pundit who is locked into cable news? Can tell you everything that's going on and why one side is right and one side is wrong. What about those of us that are experts in everything our children or our grandchildren do? We don't hesitate to let you know how great they are, right? And so my friend, he hit at me. He said, okay, we've been talking about this. What's yours? I got to thinking, I'm like, I listen to every NFL and NBA podcast that is known to man. My wife is nodding her head because even when I'm doing dishes, I'll turn on a podcast. And I can tell you why Nikola Jokic should have won the MVP over Joel Embiid. Um, I have a stupid note in my phone. I'm a, um, I'm a junkie for current events news, and so I have notes in my phone where I will save news articles and podcasts and everything. So on the off chance that somebody stops me and says something stupid about the world going on, I can whip out my phone and say, well, actually, and I spend way too much time looking at that stuff. And so what I want us to know is that hobbies aren't bad. None of this stuff is bad. God gives us hobbies to enjoy. But if we're all honest, we know that we are prone to idol worship when our lives are built around these things. But these things, they also reveal our capacity and our ability to worship something, to invest in something. And so for us, as we talk about diving into God's word and becoming a scholar, diving deep, Capacity and ability aren't our problem. It's our desire. And so we can master Scripture because I know, and I've seen us all, we master other things. We can become an authority on God's Word by His grace without any formal training. And so my question for us, do we want that to be us? 
So the crowd, they are shocked at Jesus' authority. So let's look at verses 16 through 18. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself, himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness with him. So we've seen similar words from Jesus before. Remember back to John chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, just a couple chapters ago, when, when Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And so we see that Jesus' authority comes from God the Father. We've talked about this a lot, and even think back to John chapter 1, where we see that the Word was God, the Word was with God, He was with God in the beginning, the Word being Jesus. And so the Jews, they are familiar with people coming and bringing a message to them. We have the Old Testament prophets who came in the name of the Lord. They said, thus saith the Lord. And so the Jews are familiar with people coming and speaking. But they miss when Jesus says, hey, I come and I'm not bringing my own message, but the Father. They miss him. And so he gives us two reasons why they miss him. The first one He says that they seek their own glory instead of the Lord's. So Jesus says he seeks the glory of the Father. He doesn't come trying to build his own movement. He seeks the glory of the Father. And we know that it would be really easy for him if he were to seek his own glory. Because if he did, that would probably involve him doing more signs, more miracles, doing stuff that amazes everyone. And if he does that... All the hostility around him is probably going to end because the crowd is going to be like, do it again, do it again, do it again. We want to see more because that's the pattern that we've already seen. And so Jesus could seek his own glory, do all these cool things, and everybody would love him again. But that's not what Jesus does. Look at what D.A. Carson says. He says, if Jesus were simply trying to persuade others to his views, he would seek whatever means seem most effective. In fact, he has utterly rejected such pragmatism in favor of his father's agenda. So Jesus is seeking the glory of his father, but the crowd, their leaders, their religious leaders, they seek glory for themselves. They'll do or say anything so that they get praise from each other. And so we're familiar with this theme all throughout Scripture. Look at what Luke 11.43 says. This is Jesus speaking. He says, "'Woe to you Pharisees!' For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Later on in John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43, John tells us this. He says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Paul even shares similar sentiments when he's writing to the Galatians. He says in Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so Paul in Galatians, he's 
hitting out at these false teachers who are trying to get the Galatian believers to come back to Judaism and, and get glory from them. And Paul says, am I your enemy? If I were your friend, I'd be telling you what you want to hear, but I'm calling you back to Jesus. And I'm willing to do that because I'm not pointing to my own glory. So Jesus isn't pointing to his own glory. He's pointing to the Father. And he's pointing out how the authorities, how the crowd, they only want glory from one another. And so we see this all the time in our world. I'm sure you could rattle off four or five examples off the top of your head of people that, yep, they're just in it for themselves. And so while that's obvious for us to see it, how many times do we still fall for that same thing? That we're guilty of falling for someone seeking their own glory. But Jesus here, he reminds us that right teaching always points to the Lord. It never points to the teacher. So, the second reason why they miss Jesus. He says, if anyone is willing to do his will, meaning if anyone is willing to do the Father's will. And so what Jesus is saying is that faith is more than just acquiring knowledge up here. Faith is more than acquiring knowledge. It requires submission and obedience to the truth. And so he says, the key to understanding my teaching is that you're obedient to it. That you can't separate faith from submission. You can't separate faith from obedience. It's all a package deal. So we will fully understand the truth of God's word only in as much as we're willing to submit ourselves to it. And so the people, the crowd, they're unwilling to submit to the Lord's teaching. They're unwilling to submit to the truth, and that's why they don't understand what he's saying. They don't want to submit. They want to cling to their own ways. They want to cling to their own tradition, and so they won't believe. And so here's the thing. The Jews had all of Scripture. They knew Scripture. As early as 10 and 11 years old, little boys, little girls, they are memorizing the first five books of the Bible. And we know that all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And so they knew this, but yet they still are missing Jesus because they wouldn't submit to him. They'd rather cling to the law. They'd rather cling to their tradition. And so Matt Carter, Josh Redberg, they wrote a commentary on John, and they share the implications for us as it relates to our own biblical understanding, our own spiritual maturity. And so they say some Christians think Spiritual growth is simply about more Bible knowledge. We think attending a certain Bible study and gaining more information means we're growing spiritually. We think reading some books means our faith is growing. We think a certain person who can quote a bunch of verses is a spiritual giant. We confuse Bible knowledge with actual spiritual maturity. And I can vouch for this. I went to the University of Louisville. I took a class in the New Testament there, just one class. It was a humanities credit, but there's a whole religion department. And there are people that have spent their lives studying the Bible in an academic sense, and they know it forward and back. But the vast majority of them weren't believers. They knew Scripture didn't transform their life. Have all the answers in front of them. They wouldn't submit it wouldn't submit to the Lord. And so this quote continues. It says, spiritual maturity means that we're submitting our will to the Father's. 
Spiritual maturing means that I value assembling with God's people, that I place the needs of others before my own, that I stop grumbling and complaining about what I don't like. Don't stop reading books and attending Bible studies. Those can be great tools for spiritual growth. But don't confuse the accumulation of Bible knowledge with a growing love for Christ and submission to his will. Remember, no one studied the Bible more than the Pharisees. And according to Jesus, no one misunderstood spiritual maturity like the Pharisees. And so we'll come back to this in just a little bit, but here is what it boils down to, that our amount of biblical knowledge, it doesn't matter if we're not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus in our lives. So let's look again at verses 19 through 24. Jesus says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that so that the law of Moses will not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so Jesus, he turns the tables. He goes on the offensive, and he attacks the source of their tradition. And so he does this by aligning himself with Moses. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they viewed themselves as the guardian of the law, they viewed themselves as the guardian of Moses. But remember, Jesus is now exposing their sin and their spiritual need by pointing out they can't keep the law. They don't know what the law says. And so we read last week in, in verse 7 that the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it of it, that its deeds are evil. And so what he's telling these religious leaders, what he's telling the crowd is, yeah, you may be following the law, but you're ultimately of the world. And so your works, no matter how good you think they are under the law, they're evil. And this totally racks their brains. Because again, the Jews thought that they were separated from the world. They're not part of the world. They're God's chosen people. But He's telling them, your works are worthless. Your works are evil. And so Jesus is trying to tell them that they need something greater than the law can provide, that they can't find their salvation through following the law. So we see this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. When Paul writes, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so Jesus is telling them that their tradition of adhering to the law, that's totally inadequate. If they're able to keep the entire law, they could get salvation. But in order to do that, that they have to keep it perfect perfectly, but we know that Scripture is abundantly clear. You can't keep the law. can't keep it perfectly. Your own self-righteousness will not save you, and it won't save them. And so Jesus is trying to get them to see that they're lost. He's trying to get them lost. 
but they're so reliant on their own tradition, they can't fathom that they're even lost. Because of the law, their national identity, like I mentioned earlier, they thought that they were saved by default, that they didn't have to do anything, that by virtue of being born a Jew, that they're okay, they're not lost. And so Jesus, he points out the fallacy in their argument. He reminds them when he says, you, you called me out because I did one work. He's reminding them that he healed on the Sabbath a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. He healed him on the Sabbath. And as Jesus taught about that, he said this physical healing, that's not the main point. The main point is that we need a spiritual healing. That supersedes the physical healing. And he was trying to teach the crowds then about that, but all they could see is, hey, you healed on the Sabbath, and we don't like that. So Jesus brings that up again. It's the whole reason why he was in hot water in the first place. So again, Jesus could have just let bygones be bygones, but he brings it back up because he's showing them that they're blinded to their need for a spiritual healing. They're blinded. And so he brings up circumcision. Because circumcision was their mark. It was given to Abraham. He says that, y'all think it was for Moses. It was actually given to Abraham before the law even came into effect. 400 years we learned through Scripture. 400 years before Moses codified it in the law. But he's telling them, hey, that was given to you as a sign of the covenant. That was given to Abraham as a sign that God would bless the world through Abraham's descendant. And so the Jews think that they are the blessing. But Jesus says, no, I'm the blessing. He's telling them that was just a sign. It's not binding for salvation. Again, in Galatians, Paul notes that Abraham believed by faith first, that he believed first and then was given the sign of circumcision. And so Jesus wants to point them to what the law actually says. The law says that circumcision is completed on the eighth day. So a male child, their eighth day of being alive, that is when you circumcised uh, that child. That was established in Leviticus chapter 12. But if that eighth day fell on the Sabbath, Jesus says, you all, you all circumcise all the time, and that's in with keeping the law. And so he uses this argument of lesser to greater, and he says, if perfecting one part of the body through circumcision is legitimate and okay, that being the lesser thing, then that dictates that the greater thing has to be okay. Making a whole man's body well, that's the greater thing. That is okay. If the lesser is okay, the greater has to be okay. You allow circumcision on the Sabbath. You do it all the time. If that's okay, healing has to be okay. And so look at what the expository commentary says. It says, Jesus points out that if the eighth day of a male child's life happens to fall on the Sabbath, the child is nevertheless circumcised. This shows that keeping the regulation about circumcision on the eighth day does not conflict with keeping the regulation about resting on the Sabbath. And if it is right to circumcise a man on the Sabbath, then how could it be wrong to make a man's whole body healthy on the Sabbath? The law enabled people made unclean by sin and death to dwell in a clean state in the presence of God. Circumcision was part of what made a man fit to live in God's presence. 
So by healing the man lame for 38 years, Jesus has done something far more significant than circumcision in order to make this man whole to enter God's presence. He has no more broken the Sabbath than a priest would who performed a circumcision on the Sabbath. So Jesus is pointing out to these religious leaders, he's pointing out to the crowds, it's like, you guys don't understand the law. You're making superficial arguments, you're quibbling, you're arguing about the superficial elements of the law. All the while you are missing God's heart, you're missing his intent in what he established in the law. And so he's bringing them face to face with their tradition, he's bringing them face to face with their sin. They just cling so tightly. They are missing him. And so they want none of it. So Jesus tells them, hey, judge with righteous judgment. He tells them to judge righteously and not by appearances. And he says, he's basically saying, if you want to follow the law, then actually follow the law. Do what it says. Play by your own rules. And stop judging by appearances. Stop trying to fit me into this box that you've made yourself. Stop trying to cram me in here and play by your own rules. So, for us, do we follow when it's convenient? Do we follow our set of rules? Do we follow the Lord when it's convenient for us, but when someone else doesn't quite fit, do we, do we hold their feet to the fire? So we have to take an honest look sometimes. We have different standards for ourselves as for others. Do we cling to that? And so we see their response there in the middle of that passage. This is how we know that they don't care what Jesus is saying. They say, you got a demon. They're just basically hurling insults at Jesus, calling him names. They're trying to hide their own hostile intentions. They're like, "Who, who wants to kill you? Well, everybody does. That's what everybody is talking about. But in saying that he has a demon, all they're really trying to do is to avoid criticism. They don't want to deal with their own junk in their own heart. They'd rather just throw on to Jesus that you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about, you got a demon, and so let's see if we can distract him so that he stops peering into our own soul. So does that sound familiar too? You see people just hurling names and stuff when they don't want to deal with what the real issue is at hand. So we have a couple applications today. So application number one, what are you trusting in for your salvation? What are you trusting in for your salvation? And so we've seen quite clearly that the Jews, the crowd, they relied on tradition they relied on, relied on their birthright. They relied on their national identity for salvation. That's why they're fighting against Jesus, because he's ripping all of that away. They don't even realize that they're lost. And so each of us, we need to wrestle with that, that question, am I lost? And I realize that that is hard. That's uncomfortable to do in a church setting. We're like, hey, we're here. Like, that's got to count for something. It's hard to ask that in this setting. It's hard for us to be here and to look at our own self. But if the Lord asks us why we should be allowed into heaven, what would your response be? 
If he asked you that question, what would your response be? Would it be, I'm a good person? I went to church. I believe in family values. I bought that sign in Hobby Lobby that says, God, family, country. Right? I boycott Disney. See, I, I just don't think that we're all that much different from the Jews here in the Bible Belt. We don't have those same traditions that they have. We don't cling to circumcision. We don't get all sorts of legalistic often about what the Ten Commandments say, but we trust in our own traditions. And you know how I see it? Go to a funeral here in southern Illinois. You see it all the time. I went to a funeral several years ago, and this guy, a new one, he was a member of a church, but the only thing that they talked about is how much he loved duck hunting. That's the only thing they talked about in his funeral. They didn't talk about the gospel. They didn't talk about how faith impacted his life. And all they said is, he is so thrilled to be up in heaven duck hunting up in the sky. Man, I wanted to weep because this guy was a member of a church, but I don't know that he really knew the Lord. That nearly wrecked me. But we see it all the time here. So look at what Dean and Sarah says. says. He's summarizing here a, passage, a, a conversation that he has with a friend of his that's a pastor out in California. And so this friend is speaking. He says, in California, there is rarely confusion. Either you're a Christian or you're not. He said, in the Bible Belt, many people think they're Christians, but they have no concept of the severity of their sin, the necessity of repentance, the message of grace, or the overall message of the gospel. They think they're just fine with God, and God is fine with them because they aren't atheists and have been to church before as a kid. It's almost like you have to help them get lost so they can actually be saved. They believe in God, but do not believe their sin has done anything to separate them from him or cause them to need the Jesus that they claim they believe in. So again, does this sound like the culture that we are surrounded in? How are we any different than the crowd that we look at? We know that their traditions, their traditions don't save, but neither do ours. They needed Jesus, and we need Jesus, because only in Jesus can we find grace. So my question for each and every one of us is, are we lost? Are we willing to examine that in our own soul? So application number two, this builds on the first application. Remember when Jesus said, if anyone is willing to do God's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or from myself. And so, I want to be clear, I want to be precise in what I say, that we cannot have faith if there is no submission or obedience to the Lord. Faith cannot be separated from our submission and obedience. And so that sounds pretty radical. And so I want to be clear here that the order is important, that obedience doesn't produce faith. 
We do not have a works-based righteousness. That's what the Jews were trusting in. And so I'm not saying that, that it is works-based, that our obedience doesn't produce faith, but faith is always, faith is always accompanied by submission and obedience. That our life of faith is marked by a willingness to follow the Lord, a willingness to submit to his will. That doesn't mean that we are going to do it perfectly all the time, but the overarching mark of our life is that we follow the Lord and we do what he says. So we cannot have faith if submission and obedience are completely lacking. Belief in Jesus alone, just that mental belief up here, that's not faith. And so as an example, I want to tell you all, every single one of you are putting your faith in something here right now. You're putting your faith in that chair that you're sitting in, right? You know and you believe that that chair is going to hold you up. But you don't have faith in that chair until you actually put your butt in that seat. You don't have faith until you're actually willing to sit down in that chair. So look at what James chapter 2, 17 through 19 says. Remember, this is James the physical brother of Jesus. He did not believe in Jesus initially, but turns out he believed after the resurrection, became a pillar of the church, and this is what he writes to us. He says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so let's understand that James is not speaking here. He's not telling someone how to be saved, that we cannot be saved by our works. Again, Scripture is clear that it is only by grace that we are saved. But he's speaking to someone who believes that they're saved, but there's no evidence of obedience in their life. And so he's saying that faith cannot be demonstrated without our submission and our obedience to the Lord. And he says the demons believe in God, but we know the demons don't bow to him, at least not yet. There's zero submission and obedience to the Lord. And so demons will look at the chair that you're sitting in, and they'll know that it'll hold them up. They believe that it'll hold them up, but that demon won't actually sit down in that chair. So we can't just believe and not, will, not be willing to let Jesus transform our lives. So again, I, I want to be abundantly clear. I am not saying you have to believe and obey in order to be saved. What I am saying is that you can't believe and not obey. So Jesus tells us that if we really want to know him, if we really want to be a part of him, we're going to we, we have to be willing to submit our lives to him. Our faith in him will always be followed by our submission to him. So look at what Dean and Sarah says again. He says, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender, they're not worshiping the God of the Bible. No matter how much they claim they love Jesus. And so again, is this you? Is this us? 
that I'll believe the right things about Jesus and I'll live my life however I want to. But because I, I believe, I'm okay. And so I want to ask, are you lost? And if, if so, go back to application number one. I'm, I'm troubled just because this church culture around us, we have people in our churches every week that hear the message of the gospel. They hear the message of grace. They think that they know it, and yet they walk out of the door, and it doesn't make a single impact on their life. It doesn't make a single impact on how they live. I know I'm stomping on our toes right now, but that absolutely terrifies me as a pastor. People can hear the message and, and, and agree with it mentally, but not submit themselves to the Lord. And so if this is you, please, please, please don't walk out of here thinking that you're good. I want you all to be haunted by this. I want you to wrestle with this. And I beg you, submit yourself to the Lord. Submit yourself. So application number three, let's commit ourselves to the word. Let's commit ourselves to the word. Let's be a church that is full of Bible scholars that dive in. Peter tells us in chapter 6, which we saw a couple weeks ago, that Jesus has the words of eternal life. And so we have them right here in Scripture. It's here for us to know. And so like I mentioned, let's continue to pray for our pastoral transition, but let's also pray that we become a church that 20 years from now, that we faithfully pray, we faithfully prepare a pastor to rise up in our midst. Let's be a church that when, ch when another church has an opening for a pastor, that they turn to us, they say, hey, go to the journey. They have someone that is raring to go, raring to lead, and we know that they have been taught well. We know that they are ready to lead faithfully according to the word. Let's be a church that sends pastors out to the nations, that takes the gospel and transforms the world, right? And so this isn't just for guys, because when we talk about raising up pastors, we talk about men, but this is also for ladies. I don't want to let you all off the hook. So even though you, we're not going to raise ladies up to be pastors, what I'm telling you is you hold us guys accountable, you pull us along, you push us to be faithful to the word. Push us to dive in and push us to keep up with you because we all have a role to play. And so I want to give you some practical steps. And so number one, just commit yourself to the discipline of regular Bible reading, regular Bible intake. And if you don't know what all that involves or how to do that, a great thing that you could do today at 3 o'clock we have our Journey 103 class, and we spend a big chunk of time talking about that, how you study the Word, how you uh, discipline yourself. So don't be too proud. If you don't know how to do it, even if you're a member here, like, I would invite you to come to that. But secondly, like if, if you don't know how, ask somebody. Ask somebody to study the Scripture with you. Ask them to teach you how to do that. Ask them to walk with you as you walk through Scripture. Again, don't be too proud. 
I could rattle off 10, 20 people here that would be more than happy to walk through Scripture with you. So if that's you and you don't know how, ask someone. I guarantee you'll be able to find someone. And for those of us that do know how to walk through Scripture, ask somebody to walk through it with you, whether or not they're mature or not. If they're immature, they haven't reached your level, awesome, pull them along. But also, if it's just another person that's already mature, ask them anyway, because iron sharpens iron. So ask someone to study with you, whether that's a family member here, whether that's a friend, whether that's a student. I would invite you all to grab one of our youth and say, hey, do you want to read through Scripture with me? I guarantee you that will not only be for that, their benefit, that'll be for you. But also join a community group too, because that's where we find people, that's where we're cared for, that's where we're loved, but that's also a great great environment where you can grab somebody to say, hey, would you study the scripture with me? Right? Let's ask each other. Let's be committed to the word. Let's be a church that our devotion to the word is known outside of here. That people say that's a church and those people know and they live it. They're submitted to the Lord. Let's be that church. So stand with me as we pray. So, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We know that you speak with authority. We know that your words come from the Father, that you're just not making this up. And we know that you're not saying these things to us. You're not teaching these things just to keep us bound up. So we know that you want us to find life in you. So even when it's hard even when we don't want to take a hard look at our lives, Lord. Help us to submit to your leading. Help us to put our full weight in you. You offer us something better. So help us to let go of everything that we cling to in this life. And we know that we can't do that on our own. So God, break us down. Help us to fall at your feet. Jesus, we need you, and we need you alone. So we ask that you would be glorified in us. We thank you, and we love you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray.